Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Stephen Markley. Stephen is the author of Ohio, which NPR called a masterpiece. His new novel, also a masterpiece in this podcaster's opinion, is The Deluge, which is published by our friends at Simon & Schuster. Stephen, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here, Stephen. And listeners, before we jump into the interview, I want to say all of us have read many books in our lifetime, and when you read like we do. There are books that are sort of touchstones along the way, books that are not only books that you have read, but experiences that change how you read or how you think about reading. And this is one of those books. This is a Ulysses or an Infinite Jest. It's it's a fantastic, remarkable novel. Stephen, thank you for writing it. Um, oh, no. <laughs> thank you for saying that. Yeah. Absolutely. It's just such a fantastic book. Um, And before we get into the content of the book, I want to ask you a question about the process of writing it. Uh, You wrote the book over the course of several years. And is it true that you started it before Ohio? Can you tell us about the process of writing this book? Yeah, I mean, I basically started it concurrently with Ohio, Uh um, probably around 2010. Uh, And then I just sort of traded working on the two uh, novels back and forth until it became clear that Ohio was kind of the, the easier novel to finish, uh, believe it or not. Um, mm-hmm. A simple 500 page uh, <laughs> multi-character narrative. Uh, so yeah, so I set, it, I set the deluge aside, but as soon as Ohio had been through the editing process, I picked the deluge back up and wrote the last 60% of it in uh, about a two year fever. Yeah, um, that's fantastic, Stephen. And um, I'm going to be selling the hell out of this book over the next several years. But now let's dive into the content of this wonderful novel, The Deluge. And first, Stephen, can you take a moment to just set the novel up for our listeners? Yeah, so this is, uh, you know, a multi-character, you know, multi-year novel of the climate crisis, a near future epic of the climate crisis. And basically it explores what we're all going to live through uh, in the next 20 to 30 years, um, of course, in a fictional context, um, but using the the journeys of the characters to sort of uh, create the sensation of what it will feel like to live through the climate crisis as it uh, escalates. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Stephen, your novel opens, as all great novels do, with a study of methane hydrates. Uh, and your protagonist is looking over some research and he finds himself, quote, compelled by the data set the way kids might anticipate a lesser holiday like Easter, end quote. Um, can you unpack this statement for us, Stephen? I'm curious about the perception of Easter as a lesser holiday and how that translates to the level that one might be compelled by a data set. Uh, I just think uh, Tony is a scientist who, uh, you know, has children. And so uh you know to them it's no christmas it's it's the candy holiday not the toy holiday so he uh you know uh is viewing his his research uh sort of in uh in that context um and and in this case looking at methane hydrates one of the many um you know uh terrifying uh pandora's boxes we are opening as we pour greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and that's that's his area of study 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, speaking of greenhouse gases, Stephen, uh, there are a few climate fiction novels out there right now. It's T.C. Boyle actually calls the, the genre cli-fi um, at this point. And I like to ask uh, differing authors in this genre, like, do you personally believe that the climate crisis can be reversed or do you think that it's too late? Oh, no. I mean, I think it, it has to be. Um, we, we don't have a choice. Uh, I, I think right now the damage we've done is is going to create. And that's essentially what my novel is about is the is the damage we already have locked in. And it's going to be incredibly harrowing and incredibly frightening and grueling and unfamiliar. Um, however, as I as I mentioned, as many in as many interviews as I possibly can, the difference between raising the planet 1.5 degrees centigrade and two degrees centigrade is the difference between uh, you know um, the suffering and deaths of of millions upon millions of people. Uh, for every fraction of a degree, we can keep the planet from warming. We we are saving lives and we are preserving. Um, you know, irreplaceable elements of our biosphere, of our planet. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the battle to keep that number as low as possible and to eventually reverse it um, is, is the work of this generation and the generations to follow. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that answer, Stephen. Um, another question about the first chapter of your book. In this chapter, our protagonist meets his friend Gail at a Panera. Um, and he notes that Gail's eyes are pouring over whatever lit crit text she was abusing for her doctorate. Stephen, can you tell us how a person might abuse a lit crit text for a doctorate? Uh, well, the way we all abuse books we uh, find fascinating or, or enjoy, you know, the, the dog-eared pages, the notes in the margins, mm -hmm. uh, sort of the errant coffee stain that uh, ends up on it, the crumbs from, uh, you know, uh, croissants that uh, are like you know buried into the little crevices of the book all those good ways that you can mess with a, a paper book if you still read paper books yeah absolutely thank you Stephen. and one last question about the first chapter and then we will move on uh, a little later but how Stephen might one be offended by the television series lost as a reader of literature how <laughs> i I have to be careful uh, in case I end up working with, uh, you know, one of these people in the future. Um, I, I think that final season left a little uh, something to be desired. I think the, if I recall, the fandom wasn't wasn't quite satisfied with, uh, uh, you know, it was all um, purgatory as the answer. So <laughs> be careful about endings. They can they can upset people. Yeah, right. And I, I I do feel like the creators of that television series learned from the kind of uh, all the mysteries that they never solved in that series, because the everything they made after that, I feel like has been wrapped up pretty neatly. Um, but speaking of that, Stephen, before we head into the break, um, we've we've recorded this podcast once before and the audio was corrupt. So we're meeting again. And thank you very much for uh, being willing to do that. But at the time that we spoke first, you were um, talking about how you're writing for television and there was an impending writer's strike. Uh, I don't want to ask you about the ins and outs of the strike, but can I ask you about um, the different approaches to writing between these gigantic novels that you're writing and the television writing that you're working on? How are the, the approaches different? Um, yeah, I mean, with fiction, you are uh, master and commander. You know, you have to come up with every uh, 
t-shirt that a character is wearing. You're you're looking at every single um, element of the of the story and the setting, and every little detail has to you know sort of come out of your own uh, uh, brain. And there's there is very little collaboration. You know, you work with an editor, you might have some readers go over it, but uh, television is entirely collaborative, and film as well is is entirely collaborative. Um, and I I just think like that is is certainly something I'm still learning about. And and in fact, don't you know uh, don't know as much about as I would like to. And I, and I'm still in that process of sort of gaining my education about about that style. Um, but uh, certainly, when writing a thousand page novel that takes over a decade uh it's at least a proving ground you know it's at least uh you know you're in you're in trench warfare with yourself for for long enough and um you, you sort of uh have to you know come up with every single element of this vast world and understand it and remember it uh free of um you know any sort of aid yeah, absolutely. And I will ask you a follow-up question to that after the break. But first, listeners, we're going to take a break here for a word from our sponsor. And I'll be right back. Stephen Markley. The Book and Podcast would like to thank Libro.fm Audiobooks for their sponsorship. Libro.fm has the same audiobooks at the same prices as their major competitor. You know the name. But instead of supporting the Big River, you'll be supporting your favorite neighborhood bookstores. Please head on over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore, explore booksellers in the process. I'm back with Stephen Markley, author of The Deluge, which is published by our friends at Simon and Schuster. And this is my, I think, third consecutive Simon and Schuster uh, podcast here. They're pumping out some quality work lately. Um, but along <laughs> those lines, yeah, but along those lines, in following up with my last question, Stephen, um, most writers that I know don't make a living just writing novels. Um, you know, they're right, they're teaching at a university or uh maybe writing for television or film, as you were doing. Sure. Um, what is the thought process, Stephen, behind writing this like gargantuan masterpiece of a nearly thousand page novel? Um, obviously, you know if you go 30 years down the line, maybe you make a billion dollars, but immediately probably not. Like who is the audience in 2023 <laughs> for a 900? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a real leap of faith being a novelist at all. Um, mm -hmm. Let alone writing a book that, that no one has paid you for. And that takes a decade plus to finish. Um, and I think, you know, the, the short answer is that just like, I, I would have written this book if no one had ever paid me. And if it had never been published, I mean, mm -hmm. that would have been, a devastating outcome, of course, but mm. uh, um, when you have a story inside of you, uh, you know, you don't, and it, it's just like eating away, you don't really have a choice but to get it out. Um, yeah. And I just think this, this was sort of a novel that I had always dreamed of writing since I was, you know, a child, even if I didn't know what the subject matter was yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and as I got older, and especially uh, in my college years, I sort of began looking at the situation uh with the climate and 
deciding like this is going to be the story uh not just of my lifetime but of, of several subsequent generations as i mentioned uh, i said earlier um and i i just thought that was irresistible as a storyteller to, to attempt to tackle that and to bring it from a, an intellectual space into an emotional space so that the reader can really feel what it will be like to live in this future yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Stephen. And and again, I'm thankful that you wrote it. Um, so we spent a lot of time talking about the first chapter of your book, and I want to move on to some of the other chapters in this first section of your book to give our listeners an idea of what uh, we're, we're working with in this novel. But as we move into the second chapter, we switch protagonists and the book experiences formatting change. Um, can you tell us a bit about the formatting in this chapter where there are kind of asides as opposed to footnotes uh, and why you chose to format it in this manner? Yeah, the the infamous boxes. Um, so the actual answer to this is uh, it's a requirement that you get to the end of the book to fully understand it, right? Mm. Uh, but basically the, the boxes are uh, projecting information that is not available to the main narrator of those of those chapters. Mm. Um, and that's sort of the, as I've, I've heard it called, like the like polyphonic uh, technique that the book brings where it is use, utilizing different voices, but also different registers and different techniques and different stylistic um, uh, techniques to sort of, create this uh this cacophony of of voices uh that the reader is is bombarded with but that as you push forward in the book they begin to make sense they begin to click together and uh hopefully by the end of the novel uh the reader begins to understand where all these voices are coming from and that leads to questions of uh you know narration of, of who is telling what stories and why most importantly um so without giving any spoilers i can say that it's integral to the point of telling in those chapters yeah absolutely and um many books because i do one or two of these interviews a week sometimes i go back and forth between reading the physical book and listening to the audio book from our sponsors libro fm audiobooks but this one i didn't so I don't know. I, I just read this book, you know, purely on the printed page. But I'm curious, how does yeah how do these boxes work in the audio book? Is this something you yeah think you <laughs> it it's funny because I was already even as I was writing it, I was thinking about when I went through the audio book process with Ohio. Mm. I was already thinking about how it would work in the Deluge. Um, but they they did a really wonderful Simon Schuster did an incredible job with this, and the voice actors who uh, I think they're there's more than 10 of them. I forget how many, but they did such an incredible job with it. And basically um, those digressions are the voices of, of different actors from the one who is reading the main section. Okay, great. Well, let's now um, talk about the actor, Stephen, in the third chapter. I'm picturing Tom Cruise here. I'm not sure why. I don't even think that's accurate because I think that the actor isn't an A-list uh, star when this chapter begins. But this actor approaches a woman uh, in a corporate bookstore, hits on her, asks her out, and breaks the ice by asking a question about Cormac McCarthy and Blood Meridian. Um, this yeah, R.I.P., you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was about to say this question has a bit of a different context than it did the first time that we recorded this um, interview. But, Stephen, do you think that this is an icebreaker that would work on most people uh, walking up to a, a strange woman in a bookstore and comparing the judge from blood meridian with the road. 
Well, I only attempt to get dates with women by bringing up Blood Meridian. I just carry it around with me and uh, attempt to start conversations in bookstores, bars, restaurants, wherever I can. I can find. As one does. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, no, you know, it's it's the, uh, the the choice of a novelist and novel in that section. And, of course, he, he mentioned The Road is the novel she eventually or he buys for her mm-hmm. uh, is, is sort of like t- intimately tied to the thematic uh elements of the book in which you know thinking about the ways in which apocalypse is depicted by fiction and and apocalypse and and breakdown is depicted by pop culture um and i i think like uh early on uh i wasn't even that wasn't a conscious thought but as you discover who the actor is to the story Mm -hmm. his choice of novel and particularly his choice of uh his favorite character in literature certainly bears um some importance to to where he ends up going yeah absolutely as an aside Stephen, have you read uh the passenger than the latest cormac mccarthy novel i i have not i have been uh so um you know uh absolutely frenetically busy this year i'm i'm just now getting to start like read for pleasure again so that's yes. not a long list no i totally understand i um i had to work ahead about a month and a half just to allow myself the time to read it but it's worth it i'll just say it's worth it i think it's um it's right up there with blood Marini. yeah um oh wow yeah okay yeah top tier mccarthy for sure he'd been writing it since the mid 80s um and it you know it shows that it's something he thought about for a long time but um in this chapter with the actor you also write that the actor quote went for the standard barrage first date questions not all that different from a tinder date end quote uh, and Stephen, I got married before Tinder was a thing. Thank goodness. Hopefully it's something I never. Lucky have you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully it's something I can just like have avoided. I, I read a quote one time that asked if folks who got married before Tinder became a thing felt like they got on the last train out of Hiroshima. And that's a bit of an extreme <laughs> um, comparison, but still, I, I know what it's saying. And uh, what are the questions then, Stephen, that one asks on a Tinder date? Are they different questions than like a non-Tinder date? Well, it's, it's like a job interview, you know, you're just cycling through the, you know, where are you from? What do your siblings do? Uh, well, you know, what college did you go to? Just sort of the, the rote uh, uh, back and forth that um, a, a date without any spark uh, yeah. brings about. Right, right, right. Well, um, good luck to folks out there using the Tinder app. Um, I'm going to swing us the other way in time, Stephen, as you describe one of your characters as having an Opie-like face and my question is how many of your readers in 2023 Stephen, do you think uh know who opie is uh i i think it's one of those names that um echoes through uh through history you know uh-huh. it's just you can picture the thing with the word the word described what's that uh onomatopoeia um yeah. where the uh the word just sounds like what it is you know right or the name in this case yeah i i grew up in in north carolina so i very much know who Opie is, but I have no concept of how many people outside of the Southeast uh, have that ingrained in their in their lives. Um, well, Stephen, I want to ask you now about the pages of headlines, uh, several headline newspaper headlines um, or kind of blog headlines or tweets that are placed on a page. Uh, the first one in your novel has um, several small uh tweets by donald trump as he was um 
preparing to run for president, I assume. And then the largest headline on the page size-wise is about Kanye West and Kim Kardashian. Um, is there any significance to the way that these are placed on the page and the sizes of the differing headlines? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, I mean, obviously the technique is is stolen straight from uh, John Dos Passos. Um, mm-hmm. But what I wanted to do was render that technique through the scrim of our sort of like hyper dysfunctional media ecosystem or Mm -hmm. infotainment system right and what i find so absolutely insane about those pages especially that first headlines page is i put that together in 2013 or 2014 like right around there you know before donald trump was president before all the you know uh ridiculous stuff that went on with uh kanye west without uh, you know his sort of like devolvement in pop culture uh and you know and you can read other things there like stuff about black lives matter and um uh the, the me too movement and just all these trends that i was sort of collecting at the time and 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 watching the way they exploded later in the decade was really um uh sort of terrifying mm-hmm. um in, in a way. Uh, and I think a lot of the process of writing the novel echoes that, which is that um, trends I was writing about or things I was thinking about in the early days of the novel's conception are now just our headlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and as you read, as you go on through the book, I mean, it's, it's never going <laughs> to, nobody's ever going to believe me ever again, unless they, unless they edited it and saw it. But like, uh, you know, I was writing about Russia's invasion of Ukraine or sort of plotting that into the novel mm-hmm. um, in that, same time in that same 2015 time period and then when it happened i had to go back and change it all uh because you know it's it's i had that uh you know that catastrophe occurring in the 2030s um and so the process of writing in the book uh was was just that sensation over and over and over again yeah i totally believe it Stephen, and i think that that's part of what makes reading this novel such a remarkable uh kind of touchstone experience um But finally, and listeners, look, we are a half an hour podcast, give or take. We cannot possibly cover this whole uh, novel. Stephen, maybe you can come back at a later date and discuss it more because I really do feel like this is one of those books of a lifetime. Uh, But finally, um, we're here in Colorado uh, where the Denver Nuggets just won the NBA championship. Our listeners. Oh, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. Oh, man. And, you know, as an aside, I mentioned I moved here from North Carolina where I was a Hornets fan. And so it's been nice to watch real basketball for a change. (laughs) Yeah. Um, No (laughs) offense, Hornets, but that's just the reality of the situation. But um, our listeners know that I'm a huge basketball nerd. Do you believe, Stephen, like one of your characters, that Scottie Pippen's perimeter defense was likely as responsible for the 90s Chicago's Bulls success as Michael Jordan's scoring prowess. I know Scottie Pippen believes this and has been very vocal about it in the media lately, but to you, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think Scottie Pippen changed the trajectory of the Chicago Bulls, and uh, and, and he will be one of those underappreciated players uh, forever, probably rightfully so, uh, actually, mm-hmm. because uh, obviously – Michael Jordan is a sort of one of those once in a lifetime people, but man, I can't believe since we had our corrupted uh, podcast before that <laughs> Nuggets did win. That's that's nuts. I can't. I I feel how excited you are. Uh, it's such a you know when a team hasn't won the the championship in your city before, mm-hmm. it's just such an incredible uh, thing to experience. So yeah. yeah. 
it was it was fun, Stephen, and and I I went to game two, which was the only game the Nuggets lost. Wow! Oh, yeah. yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> well, I think they're gonna, you know, I think they're gonna win a couple more. I really, they, Jokic is uh, he is an unbelievable talent. Yeah, um, he really is something. So I would I would strap in if I were you. Yeah, I think so too. I think they already would have won a couple if uh, if um, Jamal Murray hadn't gotten injured after that bubble year. But um, I, I kind of agree. Yeah, yeah, it is what it is, and it's really fun to watch. Well, thank you, Stephen, and thank you for writing this wonderful novel, which is sure uh, to be not only one of my favorites of 2023, but one of my favorites, period. Listeners, I've been speaking with Stephen Markley, author of The Deluge, which is published by our friends at Simon & Schuster. Stephen, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me and for all the wonderful things you said about the novel. Once again, I would like to thank Stephen Markley for joining me. Copies of The Deluge can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com with free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking.